Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. But we're in the second message on the Gospel to Every Home series, and we're focusing on the central mission of the church. And can anybody tell me what is the central mission of the church? To share the gospel. You guys, you guys nailed it because, I mean, you see it posted everywhere. You guys nailed the, the answer that I was going for, right? The major mission of the church is to shine the light of the gospel on those who live in darkness. This is why God gave us the church. There are other secondary purposes. Number one, we are to come together as the body of Christ. We're to encourage one another as we see uh, and, and, to, and to lift one another up and to pray for one another as we see the day approaching. But the church of Jesus Christ is not just to be an insular institution. The church of Jesus Jesus Christ is to be an outward-focused, gospel-centered, gospel-motivated institution that goes out and charges into the darkness with the light of the gospel. And this is what Jesus is talking about, and this is what we see in Jesus' heart as we see Matthew's narrative in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. And beginning in verse number 35, here's what it says. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And I love what verse number 36 says. You almost sense a tone change, right? It says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep with no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant or the harvest is plenteous, but the workers and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are able to gather together today in your presence and in the presence of our brothers and sisters and Lord digitally as well. But I pray this morning that you would meet with us. I pray that you would speak with us, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would penetrate into our hearts this morning because when it comes to evangelism and when it comes to the gospel work that you have called us as a church to do, it's not something that we can just manufacture. It's not something that we just muscle through, Father. It's something that we have to have planted deep inside the soil of our hearts, a burning passion like you showed us here in this passage, Lord. Help us to see our world like you saw these people as you wandered and as you walked through Galilee. Help us to see them as sheep without a shepherd. Help us to be moved with compassion, Lord. And help us to be going. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And the church said, amen. Scripture uses a lot of different metaphors for the church. When you think of church, especially today in our American context, when we think of church, usually the picture of a building comes to mind. We think of a building with a steeple or we think of maybe the inside of a church, a pulpit or uh, pews or, or something like that. I just said all those things that our building currently does not possess, right? Uh, so we are really breaking that, I guess, breaking that mold there, right? But when you think of church, a lot of times what we do is we think of the institution. We think of, we think of a building. At least that's what I, I do a lot of times. But the church is really a lot of different things. The church, number one, is the body of Jesus Christ. But Scripture talks about the church in a lot of different metaphors. The Scripture does talk about the church as a building. 
Over in the New Testament, Paul said that uh, it is a building with Christ as the cornerstone and the word as our foundation for building up. We are a temple that is being built upon Jesus Christ and upon the word of God that teaches us that as we are discipled and as we walk in the way of Jesus Christ, we are being us as believers, not bricks and mortar buildings, but we are being built up in a firm and on a firm foundation. He also talks about the church of Jesus Christ as a bride that's been beautifully adorned and that's been sacrificed for and that's been paid for and that, that the groom would lay down his life and give his life for the sake of and that the groom also is preparing to present to the Father one day. That's us, church. Jesus, our groom, is going to one day come and receive us unto himself and he's gonna one day take us to, the, to, to his home in heaven. That's one day approaching and one day coming. Until that time, as the bride, we remain faithful to our groom. That's a picture of the church. Also, there's a picture of the church as the body, where Paul said that there are many different members. There's hands, there's feet, there's fingers, there's eyes, there's noses, there's ears. I never wanted to be a toe in the body of Christ. I mean, let's just be honest, right? You know, when you think about what part am I in the body of Christ, I don't want to be the pinky toe. I just, I just don't. It's like people forget about that one all the time, right? But we want to be part of the body of Christ. Many diverse members, but moving in unity towards one goal with one purpose. Jesus, when he was talking about believers, this was before the church was even instituted, but when he was talking about believers, he, he used two metaphors to describe us as his followers. He said, we are salt and we are light, and salt and light, especially in the ancient agrarian culture, had a lot of meanings to it. Salt today in our culture is something we try to avoid. At least that's what my cardiologist tells me to do. It's something that we try to make sure we don't have too much of. But salt back in those days was used for a lot of different things. It was used for cleansing. It was used for uh, irritation. It was used for preservation. It was used for flavoring. It was used for all kinds of things. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. You are the salt of the earth. But if we've lost our flavor... What good are we? And then he said, we are the light of the world as well. And the role of light has always scientifically been the same, to dispel the darkness. Light guides our path. Light shows the way. But what it does first and foremost, it dispels the darkness. For as darkness surrounds us, darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. And that's what the church is supposed to be. That's what, as believers, we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be the salt and the light, that cleansing, preserving agent, and the light that dispels the darkness so all may see the truth. I've also heard the church referred to before as a lighthouse. Anybody ever heard that before? Not in the Bible, really, but referred to as a lighthouse. And see, since we live so far inland in Kentucky, we don't know a whole lot about lighthouses. You know, we, we, don't, we don't live in a coastal town or anything like that. So we may have a picture of a lighthouse or like a little, you know, like porcelain lighthouse or something in, in our knick-knack uh, knick uh, cabinet. Do anybody have a knick-knack cabinet anymore? I, I, don't, I don't know if we do. We, we just moved. We don't really have knick-knacks uh, anymore. But we live far inland. We don't understand completely lighthouses. And I think the power of the light in a lighthouse is probably lost on us. We think of a lighthouse. We think, oh, it's nice. It's got this little twirling light in it. That's, that's nice and pretty. I actually got to see... Um, a, a real lighthouse when I was on my trip to Boston a couple of years ago. I got to see the old Situate lighthouse. I mean, this was, this was one that was used back in the Revolutionary War to kind of, I mean, the history of it was just, was just awesome. But it was still actually um, in operation. 
But let me tell you this, when it's in operation, you don't want to look directly at the light if you're down below it or if you're on land close to it. Because the light that comes out of that lighthouse is so bright that it's like looking at the sun. I mean, you know when you look at the sun, you get those dots in your eyes and the doctors say it's not a good idea to look at the, to look at the sun because it can actually do, do damage to your eyeballs. Lighthouses are probably second to that, all right? And it reminds me of a saying that I heard Pastor Johnny Hunt say one time in a message that he gave. He said this. He said, the light that shines the farthest always shines the brightest at home. The light that shines the farthest always shines the brightest at home. The reason that a lighthouse's light wants to be so bright is because it's trying to get the light as far out into the darkness, into the ocean for ships and oncoming ships to see as possible. As quickly as they can see the light, the better. So the brighter the light, the idea is, the farther the light will shine. The light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. So if the job of the lighthouse is to cast light, you want to make sure that the light is as bright at home as it possibly can be to go as far out as it can. And that's actually the title of the sermon today, is the light that shines the farthest must shine the brightest at home. And here's the thing. Here is a stark reality. What's true of the physics of luminescence that for a light to shine the farthest, it must be the brightest at its location, is not necessarily true today when it comes to the practice of the mission of the church of the Great Commission. What's true of the physics of luminescence, that we want a bright light, and if it's going to shine farthest, we need to shine bright at home. We are more concerned with shining far. We'll give to missions. We'll pray for missionaries. We'll go on missions trips. We'll think of missions and evangelism in the terms of going overseas. But when it comes to missions that we have to do at home, we're scared to walk across the street. Or we're scared to go out into the neighborhood that our church is situated in. And so what's true in luminescence is not always true in, mission, in the mission perspective of the local church. And something has to change about that. Because the truth today, the sad truth today is that many living in our churches or living closer to our churches and our lighthouses are still the ones that are very far from God. Here's a stark reality or a stat. On any given Sunday, now this was pre-COVID-19, on any given Sunday, more than 3.6 million Kentuckians would have been found in, not been found in any church anywhere. That means not affiliated with any church, 3.6 million Kentuckians. When you run the percentages of that, that comes out to 81% of Kentucky is what we would call unchurched. They're not affiliated with a church. And that stat gets even worse in Lexington. 323,000 people live in the city of Lexington. Within two miles of our church are 40,000 people. If you go out to a three-mile radius of our church, you find 80,000 people. And in Lexington, 85% of those people are unchurched. Now, I understand that the gospel reaches far and wide, and it reaches outside the church walls, and it is very possible to know Christ and have a relationship with him and not be part of a church. But if you have a, a working relationship with Jesus Christ, it does drive you to be part of his body. It is not the only stat that we look at, but it is a stat we have to think. See, because I'm not sharing those stats simply to be an indicator of the darkness or the lostness in our community, although I think that's a factor we have to look at and we have to begin shedding tears over like we talked about last Sunday. But the real reason I'm sharing this stat is to be an indicator of just how dim the light at the house must be. How is it that in a city where if you drive down a major street in our city, you run out of fingers and toes counting the numbers of churches that sit along those streets? 
And knowing that all these churches exist in this city and 85% of the population will never walk through the doors of one of them. That's not a darkness problem. That's a light problem. And a lot of times as a church, we sit here in our houses and we look outside and we say, man, the world's just getting worse and worse and worse. And we sit back and we feel good about ourselves saying, look how righteous we are and look how bad they are. But I'm telling you, God is looking down from heaven and said, the onus is not on the dark. The onus is on the light. The onus is on the light. Last Sunday, I mentioned that the church wastes its anger at the lost for acting like the lost because that's what the lost know to do. But the lost never wastes its anger on the church that doesn't care that the lost is lost. See, the solution for a community in darkness is not for those in light to just sit back and hope that the darkness gets brighter on its own. It's for the light to take the light to the darkness, to pierce the darkness with the light that we have in Jesus Christ and in the gospel message. See, this is why Jesus told the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You see, so we have a stark reality that 85% of our fellow Lexingtonians don't go to church and don't see the reason to turn their eyes towards Jesus. Or maybe it is that as they turn their eyes towards his church, they're not seeing a lot of Jesus there. That's something we have to deal with too. But as we deal with this, there has to be an urgent response to that. And the urgent response is that we have to do all we can to take the gospel to every home that lives in close proximity to our church, to our lighthouse. And especially Graceway, we have an excellent opportunity. We've been in this location for about two years. We're the new kids on the block. We're, in the we're new to the neighborhood, relatively speaking. I know we were here for about a year, right when COVID hit and things were looking really good and we had some work to do when we got here on our hearts and on ourselves and then COVID hit. But church, now is the opportunity to get out in this neighborhood and let, them, let this neighborhood know we exist to glorify God and to tell people and to help them have a relationship with the one that will change their life. That's why we're here. If not, all we're doing is playing house. That's all we're doing. See, if we want to see our communities brought from darkness to light, we have to carry the light into the darkness. It's never going to happen in reverse. Scientifically, it's not possible. Spiritually, it's not possible either. But the sad thing is, is so many of our ministries in our churches operate on that misguided notion that somehow it'll get better and people will all of a sudden say, hey, I'm just going to wake up one day and I just, want to, I just want to go to a church. Sometimes that happens, but it's not going to happen that way, that, that way wholeheartedly. It's going to be the church going into the community and telling them their need. So to be a light that shines the brightest at home, we need to take our lead from the brightest lead that ever shined, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the passage that we looked at this morning. We looked at Matthew, and we looked at how Jesus was going from, from house to house, from community to community, taking the message of the kingdom of God with him. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to mimic somebody... Don't you think we should mimic Christ? That's the whole point of us being called Christians, by the way, right? That we are little Christ. We should mimic Christ in this. And so today in Matthew 9, he gives us three things. He gives us a simple model. He gives us a clear mandate. And he also gives us a, a passionate mindset that we have to look at. So first of all, let's look at the simple model that Jesus gives us that we need to understand and that we need to follow to take the gospel into our community. First of all, look at verse number 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. What we see here is that Jesus is always on mission. He was always on mission no matter where he was. 
When he left heaven as his home, he was on mission. And no matter where he was, he stayed on that mission. That mission. Look at what it says. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages. So by the time we come to verse number, or verse number 35 of chapter 9, when we pick up our text, it's in the middle of this timeline that started all the way back in, in chapter 4. When the Bible says that Jesus began to go from town to town throughout all of Galilee, throughout, throughout where he was and where he was from. And he began to kind of share the message of the kingdom. It says he began to minister in the region of Galilee, which is like the state that his hometown of Nazareth was in. So Jesus began to just kind of take the message out where he was. And as he went out, he went further. After he hit one place, he went to another place and he just kept on going. And here, and by the time we get to chapter nine, we see that his ministry is getting pretty intense. I mean, if you look at the headings through chapter nine in the Bible I've got, it says the son of man in verse number one heals, uh, forgives and heals. And then it says that he calls Matthew as his disciple. And then we see later on there's a question that he has about fasting, which we know that as Baptists we're really concerned about that, right? About fasting, right? A, a girl was restored and a woman was healed in the ministry. Then we see that he's healed the blind. And then right before we get to the passage we're in, he drives out a demon. So Jesus is busy, Right? This is something we have to understand. As we, as we operate as a church, as we minister, as we live our lives, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of opportunities that are going to come our way. But the mission must remain the same, to build God's kingdom. The greatest message we can ever share is that Jesus loves, Jesus died, Jesus lives. And you can live too through him. Jesus was always on mission. It says he continued going around all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues. He could have just said, you know what? I got, I got so many people coming to me for healing. I'm just going to set up shop over here and I'm just going to let them come to me. I think I've built a broad enough base. My brand is built big enough. Now I'm ready for people just to come to me. No, Jesus stayed on mission. He continued to go. He continued to go. And that's what, as a church, we must do. We must continue to go. He preached to large crowds on hillsides. He preached to medium crowds in synagogues. He preached in houses. He preached in one-on-one -on -one to those that were needing healing. And wherever he was and in any situation, he stayed on mission at all times. Last Sunday in the message, I mentioned that the church must return to the central belief that Jesus is enough. This has to be our central belief. Yeah, we're 2,000 plus years removed from the cross. But the mission and the method is still the same. Take the gospel. Take the gospel. When Jesus is enough, we will be able to be on mission. His mission guided every aspect of his ministry. You see, again, I've often wondered, Jesus was a carpenter. And he, you know, he's the son of God. He's probably the best carpenter that ever lived, right? Especially because you don't have to go out and fell trees. You can just say, you know, two by four, and there it is. You know, that's, that's, the, that's a great carpenter, right? Not that he ever did that. I'm sure he didn't do that. But he could. <clears throat> I'm just going to leave it there. And if I was him, I would. But anyway, I'd work smarter, not harder. Okay, I'm going to quit. But he's the greatest carpenter that ever lived. He could have built a fantastic church building, but he didn't. He said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Because his mission involved going. His mission didn't involve setting up shop and saying, come to me. His mission was to go. Jesus left heaven to come to earth. I mean, that's a long trip. And that's a big downgrade, by the way. Left heaven to come to a stable, you know, and then to live as a nomad for 33 years. So to go around all the way around Galilee was nothing to him. The man who could leave heaven to come to earth just to, just to walk and to travel around Galilee was nothing to him on that trip. 
But the reason he went into all the towns, the reason he went into the villages, the reason he went to synagogues and hillsides was because that's where the people were. He met them where they were. And you know what? He met you and me where we were too. He meets us where we are today. And the thing is, is Jesus' mission was simple, but Jesus' mission statement was simple as well. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? What do we know about Zacchaeus? Go ahead and say it from Sunday school. He was a wee little man, right? He was a little Irish, I guess. He was a little, little leprechaun, right? He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And what did he do? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? That's what we normally think about when we think about Zacchaeus. But what we also don't think about Zacchaeus is he was a terrible thief. He oppressed his, his people. He didn't care about his people. All he cared about was himself. And what had happened in his life was he had had everything that money could buy, but it didn't buy him happiness. It didn't buy him peace. And he was miserable. So what did he do? He craved to see the answer. He craved Jesus. And he did everything he could so that he could see Jesus. But the thing is, is that Jesus saw him. And Jesus came to his city. And when Jesus passed through Jericho, when he passed by, he singles out Zacchaeus, the worst dude in the whole crowd. He singles out Zacchaeus. And what does he say to Zacchaeus? He says, come down from the tree for what? We know the song. I'm going to your house today. He took the gospel straight to the home of Zacchaeus. Why? Because not just Zacchaeus needed him, the entire house needed Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' life was changed there, right? Jesus, as he was on mission, he is saying to us, I must go with the message as well. You, as you follow me, you must follow that as well. Jesus gives his mission statement for his entire ministry when he's at Zacchaeus' house. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 19. He says, today salvation has come to this house. And, he and Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So two things we learn from what Jesus said there. Number one, salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus brought the gospel. Jesus brought salvation to his home. And then number two, Jesus' mission was very simple. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. And church, that's our mission as well. And I'll tell you this, we can't do a whole lot of seeking when we're stuck in base. You remember hide and seek? When you were the seeker, did you just sit at base after you counted? No, what did you do? You go out and look. Church, we can't seek. If the twofold mission is to seek and to save, we can't seek if we never leave base. If all we're doing is sitting in base and counting. And man, we're really good at that. We're really good at sitting in base and talking about going and planning on going and training how to go, but getting out and actually going doesn't happen too much. The church's mission is the same as Christ's. We often ask, what would Jesus do? But we should also ask, how would Jesus church? How would Jesus church? How would he do church? And I'm convinced if Jesus were here in 2021, he wouldn't be spending all of his time in our church buildings. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with church buildings. We have to have a place to meet. And I'm thankful that we have where we do. But I don't think he'd be spending all of his time there. I think he'd be out in our communities piercing the darkness with the light of grace. 
The church gathers at 1030 on Sunday, but the church is scattered in the rest of the world, the rest of the week. And the question is, what are we using that breath that he's given us in our lungs to proclaim in the time that we're scattered? See, seeking and saving the lost is the simple message and the simple mission of the church. If we're only content to think of the mission of the church in context of what happens inside the building on Sundays or whenever else the church has services or meetings, we're going to miss out on the Samaritan women and the Zacchaeuses of our community, and we're going to miss out on seeing God do amazing things. Seeking and saving the lost is still the greatest way that the church impacts the world. And we can't be fooled into settling for less. When the Samaritan woman was saved, revival broke out in Samaria. When Zacchaeus was saved, the poor felt the impact as he gave the money back, as he became a changed man. When people, and I'm wondering what people in our communities right now are sitting in their homes, and when they get saved, that community is going to be impacted because the gospel has come to them. The gospel still changes lives, Right? The gospel can still change our communities, right? The gospel can still, still change the world. If we don't believe that, we got to back up and start again. So we need to follow Christ's simple model. The second thing we need to do is we need to follow Christ's clear mandate because he gave us a clear mandate to take the gospel into our community. He gives us the same mandate that he followed to seek and to save the lost. See, our need presented the mandate to Jesus. I once heard someone say, a need seen is an assignment given. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's why I see a whole lot of people walking around a lot of times with their eyes closed because they don't want to see a need because then they mean, that means it's an assignment, right? A need seen is an assignment given. For those who are more mathematical in their thinking, let me give you this formula for what I just said. The eyes to see a need plus the means to address that need equals the personal responsibility to meet that need. If I have a way, then I need to give it away. Jesus saw a need and it became an assignment. Look at verse number 37. It says, He said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest and send out workers into his harvest. In verse number 36, what had happened, Jesus, and we're going to look at that one a little closely in just a second. But Jesus saw the people scattered around and they looked distressed and rejected and immediately it became a mandate to him, I need to do something about it. Why? Because he saw a need, he had the means to meet the need, and it became a personal responsibility to do that. And so he shares that same mandate with his disciples. He says, look at the harvest. The harvest is plenteous, but the workers and the laborers are few. Pray that God would send out workers. And here's something that's amazing. We, we often think, why doesn't Jesus just tell them, you guys need to get out of the field and start harvesting? Why does Jesus say, pray to the Lord? Because something amazing happens when we begin to pray. It doesn't just become a mandate that the preacher gives it because it becomes a passion that the Lord places on our hearts. So Jesus is telling his disciples, the ones that were following him as their rabbi, that he could have said, go and do this. And they had to do it if they wanted to continue to follow him. He says, pray that God will send out laborers. Because he knew that what he was asking was right in line with God's heart. And when we pray for God to work and put us in line with his heart, he knew that that would take care of it. So he gives this mandate by saying that the mandate is the same as my father, it's the same as mine, and if you are walking in step with me, it will be the mandate that you sense as well. You'll begin to see the need. You'll begin to look with my eyes. You'll begin to walk with my feet. You'll begin to minister with my hands because you've prayed that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest. 
Oftentimes when we begin to pray, God, send out laborers, send out missionaries, call up preachers, call up teachers. A lot of times I've heard so many people say, man, I've been praying that that would happen, and I think he's calling me. Well, amazing. That's, a, that's amazing that that happens. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about right here. Don't be surprised in this 40 days of prayer if you don't begin to get a sense, I need to be doing more for the Lord. Don't be surprised. Jesus intends for his disciples to obey the mandate. In Matthew chapter 10, later on, he does send them out. He sends out his 12 after giving them instructions. But he intends for his disciples to obey his mandate. When he called, when he called Peter and we called Andrew as fishers of men in Mark chapter 1, he said this. He says, he passed along the, the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said, follow me, and I will make you fish for people instead of for fish. We already saw that the, the mandate that Jesus felt was from his father. Jesus left heaven to come to earth because the father sent him. He felt the mandate and he obeyed the mandate. And now he shares that mandate with us. See, Jesus' plan for transforming fishers of fish into fishers of men was to take them fishing for men with him. And as they learned, their heart began to grow on that. He invited them to join in accepting and obeying the mandate that he had already accepted and obeyed. Jesus didn't just, just intend for his original disciples to fish for men. He intended for his church to be a place that fishes for men as well, to be a people that fish for men and women too. He commissions the 12. He commissions us as well as his disciples, and no believer gets to opt out of his mandate. He equipped us just as he equipped them. Jesus equipped them by saying, walk with me and learn of this. Jesus equips us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when he says, you'll receive power and after that, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, I'll give you power. I'll give you what you need. I'm going to give you the spirit that will be with you. Just as Jesus was with the disciples, God is with us as we go into the highways and into the hedges today. And he's also equipped us with something even greater. Constant, continuous presence and the finished work of the word of God. The seed that we carry as well. And he also promised that he would be with us. In Matthew chapter 28, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, everything that I've commanded you, and I will be with you always. Jesus says, I will be with you. Know this, that Christ is with us. We can't shake him. He tails us and he's with us all the time. He's with us and that's a good thing. Know that when we go, and we're about the Father's work. He's with us every step of the way. So we have this simple model, right? Just, <laughs> just go. It's a, it's a model. Just go and who you come in contact with, share the gospel. We have this clear mandate. Seek and save. Go and seek and save. Be about seeking. And then we have this new mindset that we have to have. It's a correct mindset that we have to have as well. Christ's mindset was one of compassion and love and sympathy. Look at verse number 36 again. When he saw the crowds, he felt, what? Help me out. He felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and they were dejected like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion, if you go all the way back into the Greek, it's, man, this one's a really, really hard to say, all right? Splachzanomai, and I know you're going to say gesundheit, and God bless you on that, all right? It means to feel deep pity and concern. 
The idea of one's heart leaving and transferring to one who needs encouragement. So here's what, when we see that word compassion, what the Bible is, is, is communicating to us is that as Jesus looked out at them, it looks, it's him having a healed heart, looking at all the broken hearts and saying, I wish I could give a heart transplant to everyone that is out here. I want to give of myself. Even if it takes me giving of myself, I want to address these people's need. That's the kind of compassion that the Savior has for us. And that's the gospel, isn't it? He saw our need and the need was the cross and he gave of himself completely, laying his life down for us. That's what his compassion compelled him to do. Church, what will our compassion compel us to do for this community that we're living in? What does your compassion compel you to do for your coworkers, for your friends, for your family members, for your neighbors? What does Christ's compassion in you compel you to do? He was brokenhearted for the broken down. One thing going from town to town did for Jesus was to give him a perspective of people's pain and a clear understanding of just how broken people really were in their sins. His followers, his disciples got to see firsthand just what sin had done and what it was continuing to do. When Jesus journeyed through Galilee, he encountered the sick, the blind, the lame, the lepers. He encountered people who were in grief, Mary and Martha, after they, they were grieving Lazarus' loss, he encountered widows. He encountered parents whose children had died unexpectedly. He encountered the grieving. He encountered those who had been rejected. The disciples had all been rejected by temple school. They said, you're not good enough to teach, so you need to just go out there and get a, and get a real job. And, you know, we'll, we'll keep the other guys who are smarter than you. So he encountered those who had been rejected. He encountered adulterers, the Samaritan woman and the woman caught in the very act of adultery about to be executed. He encountered her as well. He encountered people who were engaged in oppressing others, tax collectors, the Roman centurion whose, daughters, whose daughter had died. He encountered racists, those who refused to speak to Samaritans and one of his own disciples who said nothing good could come out of Nazareth. He encountered murderers. Barabbas, who was set free in order for Jesus to be crucified, and he encountered thieves, the thief on the cross, right beside him when he looked at him and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He encountered Zacchaeus, who had stolen from people all the time as a tax collector. He encountered the, hurt, the hurting of the hurt, and he encountered the worst of the worst, and that's what sin had wreaked upon the world. And when he looked at them, he didn't look at them in anger. He didn't look at them in, in retribution. He didn't look at them in skepticism. He looked at them with compassion. And today as I look around, the evangelical world, what we're being known for is just looking at people in angry judgment. Folks, we need to be known for looking at people in compassionate sacrifice. He was moved with compassion. And why? Because he was like, they were like sheep without a, she a shepherd. If anyone had the right to look at the sin and the effects of sin on the world that he had come to, it was Jesus Christ because he knew no sin. Yet what did he do? He became sin for us. That's what his compassion led him to do for us. Even though it wasn't convenient, even though it would cost him his life, his compassion caused him to come to them and to meet them at their point of need. And he died for them and he resurrected for them to give them eternal life and the ultimate healing and victory over sin and death. And let me just translate that them to us as well. When he died on the cross for them, he was doing it for us too. And he was doing it for those that we're called to go out and reach. 
We need to have the same kind of mindset as Jesus Christ to adopt that same attitude as it says in Philippians chapter 2, to let this mind be in us which was also in Christ Jesus. The KJV says, let this mind be in you. The CSB says, adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Again, I ask you this. Is Christ's compassion and brokenheartedness for, the ch- for those who don't know him, is that the church's mindset today? Is that our attitude too? Is Christ's attitude for the lost our attitude for the lost? Are we still moved by the compassion of Christ? Are we seeing our neighbors and our friends and those who live in our community and the people at the grocery store and the people on Facebook and on the news? Do we see them as God sees them, as sheep without a shepherd, distressed and dejected? Or do we just see them as red and blue or black and white, as enemy and friend? What do we see? Christians don't have the greatest rep in our country today. We just don't. Some of it's unwarranted. I get it. The Bible tells us that the world will hate those who follow him. I get that. But some of it, let's be honest, is justified. A lot of hypocrisy. A lot of trusting in things other than Christ. Not necessarily living up to what we say we believe. See, just because Jesus said the world will hate his followers doesn't mean that we have to make it so stinking easy for them to do it. See, the past couple of years has revealed to me personally my own propensity to be more like a Pharisee than a disciple. I I can get real real bogged down in the them versus us type of thinking and mentality. And when I do that, what I notice is I'm never thinking like Jesus when I do that. I always find myself digging myself out of that hole that I've gotten myself into by coming back to adopting the mindset and the attitude of Christ like it says in Philippians. So if I need to come to Jesus to crawl out of the mindset I've been in, that mindset wasn't good, right? A church with a mindset of Christ will love and embrace this community with a brokenhearted compassion. See, last week, as we close out this morning, last week I challenged us to just, as we're leaving today, since most of us don't live in the 40503, some of you do, but most of us don't, is just as you're leaving today, the streets that you normally drive past to get here, just take a turn down one of them, and as you're driving down, begin to pray. Today, I want to challenge you to do this. Drive down that same street again. And this time, instead of praying, what I want you to do is I want you to start counting houses. You count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And as you get to the tenth house, stop. If you have to get out of the car or look in the rearview mirror, look back at all the other ones and know that 8.5 of those houses don't know Christ. 85% of our town is unchurched. That's our mission field. That's what we're supposed to do. These are the steps that we take. What are the steps that I take? They are the distressed. They are the dejected. They are the sheep without a shepherd. Eight houses out of ten. Closer to nine out of ten. And what are we going to do about it? Here's the steps that we take. First of all, we need to start praying evangelistically. Tonight, that's what we're going to start doing as a church. As we meet at 4 o'clock for our prayer service. And as we start on, on Monday, the 40 days of prayer as a church, praying collectively. We need to pray evangelistically. The next thing we have to do is we have to go proactively. We're going to be taking our prayers into the streets by doing some prayer walking. Today, will you drive down a road and pray? 
Later on, we're going to be having groups that go out into the streets that we're actually hitting and begin to just walk down those streets and pray, asking God to till that soil, to till that ground before we go. We'll be packing gospel bags in the upcoming weeks as well. We'll be sending and going out actually in May and June to share. We need to also be prepared to meet needs sacrificially. We're going to encounter people with needs just like Jesus did. We need to be ready to sacrifice to help meet those needs. Listen, it does no good to tell somebody, I love you, if you're not ready to prove it. If you're not ready to prove it. So will you be ready to give more, to volunteer more, to make yourself available more and care more for those in your community? We need to be willing to have gospel conversations. It's more than just taking a walk down the street and recording some steps for Jesus. Be willing to open our mouth and to share the message. And then we also have to trust him completely. And that's the question that we have to really answer. Do I trust him? Do I trust that he'll be with me? Do I trust that he did this for me? Do I trust him? And as we close our eyes this morning, as we go into a time of prayer and reflection, I know I've spoken mostly to the church. I know I've spoken mostly to those who know Christ as their savior, who have a testimony of that today. But through this, the gospel was preached as well. That Jesus came and he died as he walked through the community. He saw those who had need and he met it. And church and everyone here, if you don't know Christ, your greatest need is Jesus. And he still meets those needs. He's alive today to do that. And the question is, will you trust him? Do you trust him that when he died on the cross, his blood that he shed covers your sins? That's where salvation comes from. It comes from trusting in Jesus, the one who loves us enough and the one who conquers sin and the grave. We come to him. Just as God gave us breath in our lungs to live this life, Jesus offers us the spiritual blood to forgive us of our sins so that we could live eternally. If you don't know him as your savior, today is the day of salvation. Will you trust him for salvation? And then church, if you've trusted him for salvation and for your eternity, will you trust him for your present now and will you be a vocal disciple of Christ? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll have your will and way in this time of response and invitation. Thank you for your word. I pray as your messenger that I didn't get in the way, but as your mouthpiece, I've been faithful to your spirit and what you wanted to say to us this morning. I thank you, God, for how you worked in my heart this, this week as I was preparing and studying. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to break our hearts as a church. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare the hearts of those who don't know you, that they would receive you. This time right now, as we commit this time to you now and as we respond to you, I pray that we would pour out ourselves to you. Leave ourselves wide open and say, God, do with me as you will. Move in me. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.